Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another exciting episode of SFP Now, right here on Sci-Fi Pulse Radio. Uh, joining us today is uh, Jeff Nimoy, who's um, well known by fans of anime for his voice work on Trigun, as well as his work as both a voice artist and a producer on the uh, popular Digimon cartoon series. Hi Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi Ian, thanks for having me. Well, it's great having you on, you know, so I've been looking forward to this all week. Um, I think, hey, I think, you, I think the, do you get many, uh, do you get many uh, Americans on your show? Um, well, yeah, we, we speak to Americans, Canadians, um, I've even had a, the occasional Brit, although the Brit, British people are kind of a rarity. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's that stiff upper lip thing and they, they just don't want to talk about themselves that much. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> You know, or, or maybe I just don't speak the Queen's English enough for them, you know? <laughs> perhaps not, perhaps not. <laughs> um, I guess the first question that comes to mind um, is, uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in doing voice work for, for animation? Um, yeah, well, I went to uh, New York University. I'm from New York originally. I went to New York University to study acting. Some of my uh, classmates were Philip Seymour Hoffman and Adam Sandler. Wow. And, um, yeah, Titus Welliver. Some, you know, it's a very talented class of people. Um, anyway, that's just a, f- a few I'm mentioning from my class. But but uh, came out to Los Angeles from New York after that to try to make it as an actor. I got involved in improv comedy. You had a show there called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Oh, and you used to love that show. Yeah, that uh, America sort of uh, took over and franchised it from you guys. And uh, and I started doing a lot of improv comedy. And then uh, while I was doing a, a comedy show, I was doing one routine sketch where I was um, uh, doing different impersonations, a lot of different voices. And uh, someone from a, an animated series, a cartoon, saw me doing that. And they were like, hey, you know, we've got uh, quite a few... Uh, quite a few roles to cast and maybe you can do them all. So uh, she hired me out of that and uh, I've been in voiceover ever since. That was 1994. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing led to another, right? Uh, acting led to writing and writing led to directing and directing led to producing. And uh, about five years later, Digimon came around and that was such a big hit here in the United States. I don't know how big a hit it was in England uh, mm-hmm. but uh, or Europe for that matter. But uh it was enormous here. So once once you get stuck in something that's a hit, stuck, quote-unquote, stuck, uh, in something that's a big hit, that, that's pretty much it for your career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're involved. You're in that 
genre, and it just happened to be on anime. So I've been uh, lucky enough to be associated with some of the biggest American versions of anime, uh, English-speaking versions of anime. there are, like Naruto and Bleach and Trigun and Stitch, which was the Lilo and Stitch uh, anime version. So uh, I've had a very lucky career. So Ningo Stitch, that was a, what, was that, did that hit 20 years old last year or something? Well, Lilo and Stitch might have, but not mm-hmm. my show Stitch. Mm-hmm. My show, show Stitch probably uh, is about mm, 10 years old, maybe less. Yeah, still, you know, it's a it's a testament to the longevity of those of those characters that that you can bring Stitch back ten years ago and you know still keep it going. Right, and again, I'm very lucky that uh, Disney would trust me with uh, such a big franchise of theirs. You know, mm-hmm. um, and notice noticed one of your first voice voice uh, voices was in the uh, popular anime series Trigun. Uh, yes, which I've actually I've actually been looking a, a little bit of it on uh, on YouTube. Uh, I was looking at a little bit of it last night, and I I got through sort of the second episode of the first season. And yeah, unfortunately, I don't show up until episode nine. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I gathered that because uh, your your character wasn't wasn't actually mentioned. Uh, in yeah. I think what what was the name of the character again? It was something like my character's Wolf, name is Wolf Nicholas D. Wolfwood. He's a hard drinking, womanizing, chain smoking priest set in a, a post apocalyptic planet x i'm not even i can't remember the name of the planets but uh it's uh it, it's less sort of like a an anime version a futuristic anime version of a spaghetti western like a sergio leone clint eastwood type of western you know yeah i, I got that vibe from what i've seen a bit and um you know i think i think episode two was kind of still introducing the core characters a little bit from, mm-hmm. from what i could tell um, but I, I, I absolutely loved the artwork and, and, and the production on it. I thought it was really good, and the, uh, the, the, the actual character voices was, you know, was was pretty damn good as well. Yeah, it's a very good show, and it starred Johnny Young Bosch, who I directed in Bleach. Uh, he was also a Power Ranger. You had the Power Rangers out there, I, I would assume. Yeah, we we we, we had Power Rangers. We, we we have Digimon too, but it's kind of hard to gauge how successful things are now these days. With yeah. entertainment being so segmented into, you know, you got children's channels, you got film channels, and and and, and they've done the same with music. Everything's kind of got its own category now, so yeah. it's it's kind of hard to gauge. But um, my my friend who's into anime, he certainly knows about Digimon. Is he here with us right now? <laughs> uh, Unfortunately, no. But he, he, <laughs> okay, yeah, he, I, thought, I thought maybe he was going to pop in with a question just now. Uh, uh, an interesting story for those of uh, your fans that do know Bleach and um, uh, Trigun. So Bleach also starred Johnny Young Bosch, and I directed him in that. And we had never met, even though we were the two stars of uh, Trigun. We had never recorded at the same time. He would go first or I would go first at different times and everybody was recorded one one at a time, which is not unheard of. You know, it's pretty common uh, when recording animation. So uh, what happened was then years later I was directing Bleach and he got the lead and uh, he walked in for a session with me and uh, I said, uh, Vash the Stampede, meet Nicholas D. Wolfwood. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we, we became quick friends and we worked very well together on Bleach as well, I would say. 
Yeah, I've seen that um, that that you do recording booths, and, and like you say, you're often on your own. You maybe have someone maybe watching through 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 um, a one sided window or something. Yeah, the director um, and the uh, sound engineer are on one side of the glass, and the actor is in the recording booth on the other side of the glass. Yeah, it, it looks like uh, looks like a hang of a lot of fun, but also takes a hang of a lot of energy, you know, because you you know I've I've seen I've seen clips of uh, of various different actors. Um, I think most notably probably Robin Williams becoming uh-huh. really really animated when he's doing the, the voices of these different characters, and it's not yeah. just the voice; it's the movements and the facial contortions and everything else as well. It's, Absolutely. If you're not moving around and making crazy faces and spit flying everywhere, you're not. You're not really acting. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I so wish I'd stuck to acting so I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the best thing about voiceover work, from the actor's standpoint, is uh, there's no costume you have to get into. There's no makeup you have to wear. There are no lines you have to memorize. Uh, you still have to act, but uh, it's a pretty easy gig in in the other senses where you you don't have to watch your weight. You don't. It doesn't matter what you look like. You know those sort of things. Most mm. uh, you don't have to deal with um, fame and being mobbed by uh, lots of screaming teenage girls. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Although you do have to take care of your voice uh, a lot. A lot of people don't realize how much actually. You know, just like a, an on-camera actor might have to constantly watch their weight, a voiceover artist has to constantly watch their voice and make sure they're not, you know, talking too much and uh, outside of work and getting a horse or getting a cold. A cold is, you know, kills the whole production. Mm-hmm. And I should imagine lots and lots of water to keep keep the voice lubricated. A lot of water, a lot of hot tea, uh, a lot of green apples. Green apples sort of... Uh, takes away mouth noise from the recording. You know, a lot of these microphones are very, very sensitive. And you hear a lot of mouth clicking uh, from time to time that the, the untrained ear won't hear, but we hear it. And you would hear it if it was there. But you eat a, a green apple and that tartness sort of takes it away a little bit. Cool. Do you also, do you also have the um, you have one of those sort of like, uh, things in front of the microphone as well to, uh, to prevent yeah, a, popping peas and that? Uh-huh, a popper stopper. Yeah, a, a wind, oh yeah, a, a windscreen. Uh, they're kind, they're called all kinds of things. Yeah, we we use those in the studio where I where I saw like work. I'm a, I'm a musician, so yeah, you sound like uh, you, you you know we were talking about Liverpool right before uh, we came on. You, you do have a little bit of a the Mersey beat, you know, accent right there when you when you're talking about singing. I could hear you singing Mersey on the you know. Mersey on the ferry, something like that. Ferry across the Mersey. That's what I don't think it's ferry <laughs> on the Mersey. Right, Jerry and the Pacemakers, I believe, is their name. Yeah, that's one. Um, okay. But it's been been covered by many many a band since. Oh yeah, ska. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you're also um, pretty well known for um, well, very well known for Digimon. Uh, which you, yes. you did for Fox, and you also produced the movie um, of Digimon and, and the follow-up series as well. Actually, I was not the producer of the movie. Let's get this right. Okay. I, I was the voice director. I was the writer. 
and I played many, many roles. I didn't become a producer on Digimon until season five when I was supervising producer of Digimon Data Squad, the fifth season. Cool. But I had a lot to do with it, trust me. <laughs> cool. Well, if you were actually introducing, uh, introducing the concepts and, and the story of Digimon to someone that, that, that had never seen it before, um, uh-huh. how would you actually pitch it to them? I'd probably say it's the story about uh, eight kids in Japan who... Uh, through a series of accidents, fall into this parallel universe called the digital world, where these creatures made of digital data, and they're very much sort of like Pokemon type of characters. They're digital monsters, Digimon, digital monsters. Pokemon are pocket monsters, Pokemon. Um, And and through teamwork and friendship, uh, they save the digital world from the destruction and uh, peril it faces. Meanwhile, traveling back and forth between the two parallel universes. I've got to watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are, there's only 20 years worth of material to uh, muddle through. So Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying Start to, from the beginning. I, I'm just wondering if I've got 20 years of life left in me. <laughs> <laughs> it might, might extend my life and uh, make me feel younger. <laughs> but I played a, a character, one of the Digimon, not one of the humans, called Tentomon. And these uh, creatures not just, you know, exist as their own, and they get energy and they go up a level and get bigger and stronger with more powers and more attack uh, options. And, you know, it all started off as a little pocket video game called the Tamagotchi, where you would have this little digital pet and you would feed it and clean up its poop and things like that. And the more you did and the more you fed it, the bigger it got energy-wise. And that's how Digimon sort of uh, started as that game, and then they developed it into a TV show. Yeah, I, I remember those the Tamagotchi things. It used to be little, little song like video game type things that people carry exactly. around them. Yeah, I remember it was those. Just a little video game in your pocket. It wasn't associated with anything. And then I think probably Game Boy picked it up after that or someone like that. Um, did, do you think the similarities between the Digimon and Pokemon? Do you think the similarities uh, actually helped Digimon become is is as big as it's become? You know, it's hard to say, but from what I've heard, Digimon came first uh, in Japan. I don't know for a fact because I'm not in Japan and I don't really know too much about Japanese television history. But I heard Digimon was as big a hit as it was in America. It was ten times as big in Japan. I think it was like the number one rated TV show, and not just kids' show. I mean everything. Wow. Prime time, soap opera, whatever you have, sports, sporting events. So I think it was. And then Pokemon came about, which was a much younger version. But Pokemon was the first to land in America. And I know for a fact that Fox Kids, which was the network that first aired Digimon, and no longer exists, by the way, but uh, Digimon was offered to them, and they passed. And then they saw, uh, and I mean, Pokemon was offered to them, I'm sorry. Pokemon was offered to them first, and they passed. And then uh, Warner Brothers uh, actually took it on and put it on Kids WB, which was the network here in America that they aired it on. And it was such a runaway hit. Uh, it was a, a cultural phenomenon, really, that mm-hmm. everyone started scrambling for their own digital monster type of show, you know. And Digimon came about next, and Fox Kids jumped at that one. Cool. Yeah, so I, I remember Pokemon because that was actually, 
you know, um, that was actually so like probably the uh, latter part of the nineties. Um, yes. Came here in the UK, and um, yeah. we still had we still had children's TV TV shows on on the mainstream channels back then. So mm-hmm. it wasn't as uh, fragmented, and everything wasn't as sort of like put into categories as much back then as it is now. Right. Um, and and the thing the thing the way everything's in categories now, it's actually had had this really damaging effect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I don't get to see this stuff. Yeah, there's something yeah. for everyone. I've got to have a kids' channel. <laughs> <laughs> They're always making more. Kids. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, here's a question that my friend Raman gave me. I'm not sure if it, if you'd be able to answer it, uh, but I'll, I'll give it a shot anyway. Um, yeah. But he wants to know, you know, during the nineties when anime shows started to broadcast in 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 the US and and in national English speaking countries, um, were you aware of any sort of like censorship rules that 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 the these shows had to deal with? You know, editing scenes that were perhaps sort of like deemed as too offensive to Western audiences. Yes, absolutely. There are quite a few. Japan is very liberal in what they allow on television, um, and. America is very conservative for some strange reason. I don't know why. Um, it's a political thing, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, they, uh, we had to edit out quite a bit. Uh, for instance, one of my favorite stories. Um, well, uh, before I tell that Digimon story, let me just say, I also did a show called Zatch Bell that I wrote and directed. And Zatch runs around, he's a little boy type of character, and he runs around naked throughout the whole thing. And we had to sort of like blur his genitals, you know, as he, as he ran around in America. <laughs> um, but but for Digimon, one of my favorite examples are, um, so two main characters, Sora and Mimi, uh, girls about probably 14 years old, I would say, they need a lift. They have their bus broke down or whatever, and they needed a ride somewhere. So in the Japanese version, they decided to dress like hookers and flat down some uh, guy driving a convertible on the freeway and just uh, promise him sex for a lift somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy, you know, his eyes bug out. And he's like, yes, sure, get in, girls. And, and then they get there and they're... She's like, okay, where's my sex? And the girls are just like, you know, get out of here. And they flip him off and uh, jump out of the car and stiff the guy. Uh, stiff. So, uh, pardon the pun. <laughs> so, so in our version, obviously, we cannot do that at all. So we just made it seem like they were playing dress up instead of being hookers. They were like, well, our bus broke down. Broke down. Let's uh, let's just play dress up. <laughs> Excuse me. And they. Uh, you know, they put on all this heavy makeup and dressed like hookers, and they're like, ah, we look so funny. And then just by coincidence, Sora's cousin drove by, and uh, they flagged him down, and they said, oh, can you give us a lift? And he's like, Sora, I can't believe you're playing, you're so funny dressed up like that. Sure, get in. And then uh, they get in, and they drive, and they promise him something that's not sex. Uh, and then uh, they get there and they're like, ah, we're out of here. Uh, my mom never liked you anyway. Goodbye. And they leave. So that's one of the one of the ways we got around it. Another way we got around it was in Digimon Data Squad, we had this giant, this digi, giant Digimon that was shaped like a bomb. And he's walking around some uh, big amusement park. Now, at this point, this is season five already. Disney bought uh, Fox Kids completely. So Disney now owned the, the property, 
And they're like, we're not going to have a giant bomb walking around an amusement park that looks just like Disneyland. <laughs> you can imagine why, you know, Euro Disney, Tokyo Disneyland and Disney World would all, you know, they don't want that terrorist a- aspect, uh, you know, associated with their brand. So um, the producer at that time, a woman named Rita Madgecut, she had the idea to painted tangerine <laughs> the bomb and turn it into tangerine mon or something like that citrus mon i think maybe was the actual name and uh and instead of uh an explosive bomb walking around it was just this fiery tangerine you know and you know a lot of the fans who love you know there are two two cultures that love uh anime there's the sub culture who love the subtitled versions the original japanese with mm-hmm. English subtitles. And then there's the dub uh, fra- faction, which is my audience, really, you know, the ones who liked the dubbed version that we completely make into a more English-speaking TV show with English-speaking sensibilities, Western sensibilities. And, uh, you know, the, the sub-fans hated that. They could not stand it. But my answer to them is, you know, it's also a business. And mm-hmm. if, if we would not put that one... TV show, one episode on the air, you know, all those actors don't work. The editor doesn't work. This musician doesn't work. I don't work uh, as a writer and director and producer. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, commerce that goes along with one episode. Forget about the advertisers, you know, and all that. So um, so I always think it's better to air than not to air. Yeah, it's like a friend of mine used to always say, you know, there's a reason it's called show business. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's it. Um, it's a business. It's not necessarily about whether whether an audience, whether a particular person likes a show or hates a show or, or whatnot. You know, it's, right. about, it's about people's careers. Um, you know, go, going going back to something like uh, someone who, you know, may, may, maybe just, just does nothing all day but hold a boom mic or something like that. All, all the way up through the hierarchy, you know? I think the biggest difference for me before I became a professional was thinking what a professional uh, in the arts was like. And I just thought it meant, you know, you get to do your art and you get paid for it. You get to have fun and all this stuff. But you realize quickly when you talk to other working professionals that it is, in fact, a business. It's an industry. And, uh, you know, the you have to learn that those aspects of the business and there's no fooling around, you know, it's, we work, we work hard and, uh, and, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of money at stake for everyone involved. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a bit of an insight of that because, um, as I kind of uh, alluded to earlier, I, I've, I actually trained as an actor, uh, mm-hmm. for quite a few years. Um, I was actually, I, I, I did a sort of like few college level things, uh, mm-hmm. was on the cusp of going to university, but I did a complete U-turn and decided I didn't want to do the university thing, and I went into yeah. fringe theatre for a while. Uh, but one one things I did um, on, on my little acting journey was um, we won a competition, um, a theatre company that I was a member of, and um, it was to appear on the uh, Granada stage in, in Manchester uh, with with a show that we'd sort of like devised and, and, and everything, and they uh, made a little film out of it as well that was um, aired on a program called Celebration. Uh-huh. And um, I got I got an idea of the professionalism that it took through 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 that because you know there was a lot of waiting around for you know setting up of scenes and um, all sorts of all sorts of stuff going on. 
and uh, yeah. there was also having to repeat the same lines over and over and over again just for the sake of getting a lot of different camera angles in and yeah. um, and, and and stuff like that and that that really thrown me because um i I had this tendency of learning my dialogue right. and everyone else's as well. And yeah. when you're asked to do it over and over and over and over again, you know, you kind of get to a point where you're thinking inside yourself, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then when, when you start thinking that, you start messing up the lines and fluffing it to a point where you actually need someone off, off, the, off in the corner of the room prompting you. <laughs> so, well, well, trust me, even like... Uh successful working actors here um, and in Europe, they who don't know, they don't understand what the director does, uh, a lot of times they uh, they also think they're doing something wrong because the director's not communicating with them. If the director just says to them, I need this, what's called coverage, I need this coverage, I need to, you know, in case, in case I need to cut away to something else, uh, a close-up, a line, you know, because there's a lot of editing going on, and you, you know you can't have one long, unstagnated shot. So you you do these things called cutaways, and filming it's called coverage. And unless you tell the actor, you know, why you're making them do it thirty times, they might not understand that. Some don't care. Some are like, I'm being paid. That's what he wants. That's what I'm giving him. I'm here to serve the director. That's probably the best attitude to have, to tell you the truth, on a film. Well, you know, my, my experience of it was enough to sort of like, um, it, didn't, it didn't actually put me off, but it's just sort of like, um, I just thought, it's not my thing. I prefer I prefer yeah. the live interactivity between, you know, right. actor and audience and sort of like, uh, and then if I do mess up, I can improvise my way out of it, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is uh, you know, lots of fun. Um, yeah. But you know that's why I liked whose line is it anyway? You know because so like uh, really what you're doing on that you're playing the same sort of games on television mm-hmm. that you're actually playing a theatre work- workshop. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you know I really, I loved uh, doing comedy improv. Mm-hmm. Um, you've you've done a ton of Digimon stuff as as we've already established. Uh, what is it about uh, the Digimon characters that that kind of keep you coming back? What what do you think the appeal is? Well, there are, there's a team, you know, it's not one character like uh, that you can really latch on to and say, I love it because I love this character. There are eight leads, and then those eight leads have eight Digimon, which are also leads. So you're bound to relate to somebody, <laughs> you know, and, you know, just taught like, you know, teamwork, which, and collaboration, which is, a big thing, especially in like you know show business, uh, to to create a TV show or a film, or really anything, you, you know, as a band, you know, you need the producer, you need the sound engineer, you need everything. It, it, it's just really life is a, is a team effort, you know, it's a collaboration, and uh, and Digimon really stresses that. But what brings me back personally is just my relationship with the fans. You know, when I first saw Digimon, they offered it to me. They sent me over a uh, VHS, that's how long ago it was, the VHS of uh, Digimon, and I watched it, and I said, who's going to watch this crap? What a bad show. And I turned it down. And then wow. uh, later on, uh, I really had, like, nothing going on. Um, I was in between projects, and I thought, huh, maybe I'll revisit Digimon, and I went back, and I knew everybody over at Fox Kids, and I said, hey, you know, if you still want me to write a script, I'll do it. 
And then I really started to like it, actually, as I went along. But but it wasn't until the fans, you know, it was just really the beginning of chat rooms on the Internet and really fan interaction, you know. Even social media was not that big yet. But the fans could actually, you could really find out right away what the fans think, you know. And uh, I started, like, visiting them in chat rooms and such. Um, and, and I just started, like, talking to them and getting their opinion and, they're a passionate bunch, I'll tell you. Uh, sometimes you realize I'm arguing with a 12-year-old, but uh, for, the, for the most part, <laughs> they're just very passionate. And uh, and they made me who I am today, So, which isn't saying much. No, I'm kidding. But they, they, they definitely, you know, helped my career immensely, you know, by watching the things I put out. And uh, by, you know, if I put out that I'm doing a new show, they check to that as well because of my hit track record. So uh, so the fans and their passion really what just connect me to it these days. Yeah. Do, do, do you actually have any favorite characters from, from the show that, that, that you were in? Yeah, you know, in the season one, Joe was probably my favorite character. He was the genius sort of hypochondriac, and uh, I come from a long line of hypochondriacs, so it was fun to write for Joe. And uh, and then, of course, my character, Tentomon. Tentomon! Tentomon! Digivolve 2! Kabuterimon. <laughs> a lot of your fans are fanboying and fangirling out right now. Um, so Tentomon, of course, was my favorite. And the more I got to know him, the better the lines I wrote for him. <laughs> so people wonder why Tentomon has all the funny lines. Because I wrote them. Because I'm playing. Uh, season 2... Season two, I, I would say uh, Davis and his uh, Digimon, Vimon. Davis was played by an actor named Brian Donovan, who was also very famous for playing Rock Lee in Naruto, which I cast him in that as well. And uh, Brian's one of my favorite people to work with. He's just a wonderful guy. I'll give him a free plug right now. He's got a wonderful movie uh, on, I don't know if you have it in England, there's a... Um, a premier um, network called Showtime that you pay for, and uh, and his movie called Kelly's Hollywood is on there. He wrote, directed, and produced and edited that. It's all about a documentary about he and his sister. It's amazing, really amazing. Yeah. And I'm writing, I wrote, and I am directing a live-action movie, uh, which we're filming the bulk of in August, and I cast Brian as one of the leads in that as well because he's a terrific on-camera actor. Cool. What 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 is this? Uh, what what is this movie you're doing? Is it? Um... So this movie it's called Famish, like fame is famous, but fame ish, like mm-hmm. I'm famish, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. So so I don't know how many there are in Europe, but in the states. We have an anime convention somewhere every single weekend, and you get invited to these, and you they fly you out, and they put you up in a hotel, and you do panels to speak to uh, your fans and things like that. And uh, so, so I wrote this romantic comedy that is set at one of these anime conventions. They're like a comic con. I think you have a giant one in London called London Expo. Yeah, we do, and there's also a there's also a, a not quite as big one in Manchester called the Manchester Expo. <laughs> oh, okay, there you go. Yeah, no, one, no one ever comes to it. <laughs> there's an enormous one that tours Australia called Supernova, and one in New Zealand called uh, Armageddon. And you know, we're talking about you know somewhere between 
50,000 and a half a million people on each of these, you know, depending on the size. So they're, they're, they're quite popular. So I decided to take advantage of that and, uh, and have 10,000 extras in costume for my movie. And I wrote a romantic comedy. We're all sort of playing versions of ourselves. We're not, I'm not playing Jeff Nimoy. I'm playing a caricature of Jeff Nimoy. And the reason I'm, I'm using my own name is because there are going to be signs everywhere that say Jeff Nimoy and program that says Jeff Nimoy and fans while we're filming might come right up to me and say, Mr. Nimoy, can I get an autograph? So I don't want to be, you know, Joseph Bartlett and all of a sudden someone calls me Jeff Nimoy. So we're all playing fictionalized versions of ourselves. My character is quite neurotic and Brian's character is quite petty and uh, it's just going to be a lot of fun. Lex Lang is in it very popular voice actor and a guy, one of the first actors I've ever worked with. First guy I ever hired um, to be an actor when I was a director and producer. So uh, so Lex is in it and some others. Nikki Boyer, who is one of the most watched women on the web, uh, is just going to be a real fantastic uh, experience for all of us. And can't wait till August to, to shoot the bulk of it. Awesome. You know, it sounds like something that I, I kind of want to see it, you know, to see how it turns out. Yeah, okay. it's we're filming primarily. We filmed a little bit at Anime Los Angeles here in uh, the Los Angeles area. We might or might not be filming a little bit at uh, Anime Expo in downtown Los Angeles, but the bulk of it is going to be at a, a a convention in Madison, Wisconsin, in the Midwest here in the states, uh, called GeekCon, and uh, it's. A sort of mid-sized, small to mid-sized convention, but I really fell in love with them last year when they invited me, and I thought, if there's any place I want to film this movie, it's here. And uh, it's GeekCon 12. It's their 12th year in, in business. And hopefully, if this movie does well and gets released and everything, uh, hopefully this will become one of the premier conventions in the United States. Cool. Well, I'll actually uh, keep an eye out for the movie when it comes out. Thanks. Um I noticed uh, also from reading um, some 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 of the work about some of the work you've done. You've actually uh, done looping um, on shows such as Arrow, Once Upon a Time, and even Nashville. Yeah. Now, for those for those of us that are not in the know, um, right. I actually think I have a vague idea what looping is, uh, but okay. you know, I still need educating. <laughs> uh, would 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 you mind talking a little bit about what what is involved in in looping, and perhaps you know, talking a little bit about the work that you, 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 you perhaps did on Arrow on Once, you know, in regards right. to that? So there are three words that all mean the same thing in post-production. Looping, dubbing, and ADR, which are letters that stand for additional dialogue recording. Uh, that's where I got confused because I, I thought, you know, they, they all sound like completely different things. And yeah, but they're all the same thing. They're all synonyms for each other. Uh, so pretty much when you watch a TV show or a movie at home and there is a crowd scene or they're outside at a park, let's say, well, uh, let's say it's a restaurant. It's a good example. You say, so these two people are talking in a restaurant and you hear, you know, chatter, you hear plates clinking and glasses clinking and water being refilled and you hear order up, you know, and you, you know. Adam and Eve on the raft, rock them. You hear all these things in the background. Well, when they actually film that scene, it's done in complete silence, except for the two principal actors talking. All those people in the back are just miming. They're just—they're not making a sound. They're pretending to talk to each other. 
Wow. And then, well, because you don't want anything to interfere with the dialogue. You don't want uh, an unnecessary noise to drown out what you know is the important thing that people want to hear. Now, if you watch that at home in complete silence, except for them, you would say, well, "Why aren't? Why isn't there something? There's noise going on. There's something missing. Some ambiance." Uh, but we go in as a group. You know, depending on the size of the room, like if it's a restaurant, you maybe get eight actors. If it's a gladiator scene, maybe you get a hundred actors, and they they just play those characters in the background, the extras, and they just say things like they have regular dinner conversation, or one plays a waiter, and you'll never hear it. It's mixed down so much in the final sound mix that you don't notice it, but you'd notice it if it was gone. That sort of thing, mm-hmm. and a second. Uh, function of it is well let's say uh a movie like pulp fiction comes out and quentin tarantino is too busy doing his next movie and he just doesn't have the time to go and fix a line of dialogue that wasn't recorded that properly while you're working you know and sometimes that happens or there's just something going on where the mix was very low, and you just have to replace it. You have to just over-talk yourself. Well, Tarantino's too busy, so what they do is they go out and they ask a bunch of actors, who can impersonate Quentin Tarantino? And I go out to that audition, and I say, knock it off. It's not about the coffee in the kitchen, okay? It's about a dead brother in my garage. And before you know it, I'm going to get divorced, okay? And I don't want to get goddamn divorced. So I get the part of Quentin Tarantino, and I get to do that. And and sometimes they take out all the curses for broadcast television. That's another reason you go in to, to impersonate someone. Now, a lot of times these actors do do their own voices. They, they'll, they'll loop themselves. They'll do their own EDR. But many times, they're through contractual reasons, they're busy on something else, and they just can't. Or they have it in their contract, they won't. They don't like it, and they don't do it. So things like that. So those are the two main reasons for looping. And it's a big industry. People don't realize it. It's a huge part of post-production. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm so, like, um, really frustrated because I can't do impersonations of anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember when the movie Gladiator was being uh, looped, uh, every uh, they needed every actor and male actor in the town who can just yell and all our voices were blown out everybody just from battle scenes you know all that kind of stuff yeah no no one no one saw like scream I can get okay and go I've stuck my toe that's <laughs> 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 just saw like something that 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 popped up in my head when 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 oh. seeing that scene in Gladiator. Or the macho stuff and someone in the background just song like being a complete girl like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just got a bit of a, an appreciation for the absurd, I guess. One <laughs> <laughs> um, one one of the um, things wondering the big things you did some looping work on was a uh, was God Singer. Was that actually the movie that was out a couple of years ago? Was it or was it the animations? Right, the movie with uh, Brian Cranston. So I, I played a bunch of people, uh, as did a bunch of us. You know, there were like 200 of us on that movie. Um, so we were like, you know, stranded at the airport or we were a bunch of soldiers. And I got to do the actual dialogue of an actor named David Strathairn. You've probably seen him a million times and you didn't know his name. But he sort of talks like this. And he played one of the generals. And 
Now, whenever there's a David Strathairn role that needs looping, I'm the guy they call. And a lot of times you don't know you do these impersonations until you try. Like, no one would think to do a David Strathairn impersonation until they had to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I, I, um, I actually know, I, I actually have a vague idea what David Strathairn looks like. Um, you know, he's, he's in a lot of this stuff that um, I, I watch. He's had a large career. He was nominated for an Oscar for a movie called Good Night and Good Luck about Edward R. Murrow, an American newsman. I don't know if that made it out there. Um, yeah, it probably did. <laughs> George, George Clooney directed it. I know Clooney made it out there. Yeah, Clooney made it out there. I mean, I actually uh, seen something uh, of George Clooney. I'm, 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 I'm a collector of old television shows. Mm. Yeah, and... Um, George Facts Clooney. Of life? Is that what you're going to say? Facts of life? No, no. Oh, okay. Predates Facts of Life. Actually, um, he was actually a guest star in the third episode of a show called Street Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> and he played awesome. he played the friend of uh, of Jesse Mack, the main character. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a TV show out here for years called The Facts of Life, and he was. On that show as well. Well, I, I sort of like uh, I've seen this Street Hawk show, and that's why I connect to television because it, it sort of blows me away the amount of uh, the amount of people that are actually now huge stars that you see, you know, play, playing guest starring roles in these shows. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of fun to watch out for them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, George Clooney he was in Street Hawk. And um, you know, I think I think someone needs to sort of like pull him up on that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a billionaire now; he doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you've done a ton of work as a, a writer, producer, you know, for animated shows as well as you know, sort of like te- television shows, normal television shows. Um, as a writer, what sort of things do you feel make for a solid episode? of television and, and what what characters uh you know from from animation and television really appeal to you? What what type of characters? I'm sort of into the anti hero. Um the the hero you root you root for, even though they're doing something bad. Like Breaking Bad. Do you have Breaking mm-hmm. Bad there? Yeah, I love Breaking Bad. I um uh, I, I watched that um uh, I actually binge watched all the all five seasons of that. It's it's my favorite show of all time, and it's just so well done. And that's what I mean. You're rooting for Walter White, but he's doing terrible things. He's a he's not a hero, but you're rooting for him. So it's called the anti-hero, you know. Mm-hmm. So I love that where it's not so black and white. You know, he's doing bad things for supposedly the right reasons. I say supposedly if you watch the whole series, you know at the end what his real reasons are. Um, but. I just love that. And I love little putting Easter eggs in things uh, like they do in Breaking Bad, like something that you don't even notice unless you're on a chat room and someone, you know, pointed it out to you like, oh, yeah, they must like, oh, smart. Those producers, that writer, you know, things like that. I love doing that. But I love writing for the antihero. Mad Men was another one of my favorite shows. And The Sopranos, all three lead characters are not great people. They're very bad people, but you root for them regardless, you know? Everything's a little black and white. The line is blurred. That's what I like. Mm -hmm. I don't like good versus evil. I like 
evil versus lesser evil. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of being like that. I mean, so like the uh, the recent Star Wars movie, uh, for example, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, Last, the Last Jedi. Um, yeah. A lot of the fan base was so like screaming and um, and and so like uh, getting really upset about the fact that Luke Skywalker had just given up. <laughs> And well, I was so like, I, I was so like there, and I thought, well, it kind of makes sense that he's given up. <laughs> doesn't it make him more three dimensional if yeah. he gives up? That, yeah. That's what I. And, and don't forget, Luke was not a. I'm a Star Wars nut, so I can talk about this a lot. Uh, Luke was not, you know, brought to the uh, the Jedi's at age four or three when it was the right amount of time. You know, he was brought at the tender age of like nineteen, which is really unheard of. Maybe he was 16, you know, which is insane. Even his father, Attican Skywalker, who was brought to them at eight, even Yoda then said, too old is he, you know? So so don't forget, Luke doesn't have that classic, like, brainwashing of, it's, you know, I'm never giving up. He, he developed his own life. Mm-hmm. So, And he was never fully drained anyway. Maybe he's the baddest of the badasses because he's got, you know, uh, the most... Uh, family stock in him but at the same time he's probably not the strongest jedi because he didn't train as much as the others you know obi-wan probably could have crushed him in a fight in their primes yeah well, well what i what i don't get about it is they, they, they a lot of these fan base are going on about oh he's so heroic in the books and stuff like that and far well yeah so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. so like he was he, he was heroic in 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 I, um, in in Return Jedi as well, but he 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 saw like um, he almost gave in to the dark side on several right. occasions in that film, and yeah. the thing that made him so appealing as a character was that he messed up on on quite a number of occasions. <laughs> I think the fans are just a little too harsh on the whole thing. You know, don't forget. George Lucas made it for 12-year-olds originally. The first Star Wars was made for 12-year-olds. And when we were 12 and we watched it, we absolutely loved it. We loved it so much that at my age now, at 51, I'm like, you know, still watching it and still as passionate about it as ever. So, But he's not making it for me at 51. And people are upset that he's not. They want him to grow as the age of the audience grows. But as we mentioned earlier, they're always making more 12-year-olds. You know, every year a new batch come in and he's making it for them. He's still making it for them. So just enjoy it. Go with a big thing of popcorn. Sit there, cheer for the good guys, boo at the bad guys, and be a 12-year-old again when you're watching it. Don't don't give George Lucas and Disney such a hard time, or J.J. Abrams for that matter. Yeah, get, get in contact with your inner child and just go as your inner child and, and right. see it through the eyes that's of that how, kid. That's how I look at every Star Wars show, uh, movie that I watch, and I'm never disappointed. Yeah. I always walk out having fun. I mean, I I loved I loved the I loved the uh, Last Jedi. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, Me too. And, and but it got horrible reviews from hardcore fans. I, I think they're really too harsh. Yeah, they they are. I mean, the the one thing that didn't make sense about Last Jedi for me was the uh, the First Order could have actually destroyed the entire rebellion. Um, yes. Had they actually sort of like, been aware of the uh, of the fact that there's this thing called tactics, they could have sent half their fleet around front and cut them off. <laughs> Oh well, no movie if that happens. <laughs> well, it would have been still a movie. It just probably wouldn't have ended well. <laughs> but you know, it's all like uh, 
that sort of thing bothers me more than the character sort of thing. Yeah. But that's just the way I that's just the way I think, I guess. Um, but I I could let that go because he enjoyed the film. Yeah. You know? And and that's what you got to do. You just got to let yourself go. Okay. Um, when you actually set about doing a voice performance for an animated character. How do you go about sort of like giving these characters unique voices? Because it's it must be really hard to do when you've been been doing 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 voice work for for animation for so long. Um, do, you, do, you, do you find it difficult sometimes? Do you find you ever, ever repeating yourself? Well, you do repeat yourself, and sometimes they want you to repeat yourself. You know, they like a certain voice for a certain thing. You know, um, and that's okay too. You know, a lot of things sound like. Like Derry Derryberry, who played Jimmy Neutron, you know, because they love that voice, and who I directed in Zatch Bell. So Zatch Bell and Jimmy Neutron sound exactly alike, but it's okay because people like it. Um, I do have some stock voices. I do. Uh, I have a voice like that that I like to play dumb, big dumb guys, <laughs> you know, things like that. And uh, and then I've got my you know sort of heroic. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Dark, Indiana Jones voice, you know, that I like to put on. But pretty much what you do is you you see a, a, an animation, uh, a drawing of the character uh, in, in the audition. That's the first step. You see the character, how it, what it looks like. On occasion, if it's already done in Jap- Japanese, like on an anime, you can actually see that character moving. But, you know, I wouldn't listen too much because the guy's speaking Japanese. And also, you don't want to be too influenced by the Japanese actor. Um, that voice. So you just sort of like picture in your mind, you know, using your imagination. What does this guy sound like? What might he sound like? And you just start uh, creating, you know, based on the dialogue given and the the um, the specs given by the casting director or producer or director. And you just start start creating, you know. And if if you feel comfortable bringing that guy to life with the voice you did before, so be it. It's not that big a deal. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, one of my favourite animated characters of all time, and this is sort of like Western animation, is it's got to be Fred Flintstone, and that relationship between Fred and Barney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, yeah, sod the Simpsons, give me the Flintstones any time. <laughs> <laughs> now, occasionally you get a guy like the voice actor who played Barney Rubble, Mel Blanc, who can do a trillion voices. He did Bugs Bunny and all the characters in those Bugs Bunny cartoons, Yosemite Sam, Sylvester, Tweety Bird. He did them all, every single one of them. And they all sound different, you know? So occasionally you can get a guy like that and he'll be amazing. But for the most part, most actors have three to five stock voices they do and you're hiring for them that for them there's a very talented actor i like to work with named wally wingert who literally does a thousand voices and he's incredible but that talent is rare i'll tell you out of all the voice actors writers and producers out there um who who would you say has had maybe the most influence on you in in so far as uh as being an inspiration to you yeah mel blank for sure who i just mentioned so i used to watch Bugs Bunny quite a bit as a kid. It was on TV in New York all the time. Before school, after school, and the weekends. And I would have to say Bugs Bunny is the number one comic influence on my life, if I'm if I'm being honest. Uh, so so I noticed when I was at a very young age that one guy was doing all the voices. And I was amazed. And so I started actually working on different voices and because of that. 
And it's just really an amazing feeling when you're a kid sitting there in front of your TV and your Saturday morning cartoon is coming at you from the TV. And then 20 years later, you're sitting in front of the TV on a Saturday morning and your voice is coming out at you. It's, I get chills thinking about it now. I never get tired of hearing my voice on TV. (laughs) (laughs) And it started with Mel Blanc for me. So, so you're kind of like the opposite of most singers. Um, that you know, you get a lot of singers. They they they'll go in, record, but they they'll absolutely cringe if they have to hear yeah. themselves played back. Uh, <laughs> well, if I had to watch myself, I would cringe for sure, which I'm going to have to because I'm starring in this movie I'm directing. So that's going to be tough watching the uh, the dailies of me of me uh, at performing on camera. I'm going to pick myself apart for sure. Oh, why do I have to look like that? Mm. But uh, singing, I'm, my voice doesn't bother me. I like I like the sound of my voice. You, you, could, <laughs> you could maybe do a Citizen Kane and wear wear a fake piece on your nose to make your nose look bigger or something. To, you know, so you look <laughs> I, don't budget, <laughs> I don't know the budget uh, that uh, Orson Welles had. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Orson Welles on, on Citizen Kane. Yeah, he, he, he did that. He, thought, he had this thing about his nose where he thought his nose was too small, apparently. <laughs> Um, I'm a film historian, and that is one of my favorite movies as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I I wouldn't call myself a film historian, but I I love films. I've got a I've got a library of um, over a thousand DVDs and so like uh, a lot of uh, over a thousand so like things that that I have um, on on the cloud, different Amazing. movies, TV series. I just so like oh. love films. Well, I don't know a, a film director that isn't uh, just a film nut. I mean, it makes sense. That's why you get into it. So the, the more films you see, the, I think the better it is for your sensibility when you make films. Mm-hmm. And I, I, love, I love a lot of different films as well. I mean, there's a lot of people that know me as a guy that sort of runs a science, science fiction website, and they, they're, they're absolutely surprised by, by the variety of films I have because more often than not, they think because I'm a sci-fi nut, Everything in my my my, uh, my my flat is going to be science fiction, and it's not. <laughs> so, Interesting. So it's a, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. Um, you you're actually um, you you actually are related to the late Leonard Nimoy. Um, I, I, I read about I read something that you wrote which was really very touching and very nice. And um, I think Thank you very much. I think we can all agree that you know he was uh, very much loved and stingers by many. But for, for the role that he did of Spock, as, as well as the uh, voice work he did in Transformers and numerous other things he did, as well as his photography. Yes. And I'm just wondering if you ever had the chance to work with him on anything. I, I did. But first, let me just say about Leonard, who and you read it about in the article I wrote called The Other Nimoy. These are the voyages of a second cousin once removed. And uh, I really described my relationship with him. It was written a, a year after he passed, and uh, he was just the most generous guy. And I don't mean his money. I mean his time, his effort, his emotion. He was just so wonderful and generous, and I had a very close relationship with him, and I miss him a lot. Um, but when I first came to uh, – well, actually, before I first came to California, I was in New York, and he directed a movie for Disney called Three Men and a Baby. At the time, it was an enormous hit. It was the biggest moneymaker Disney had ever had up until that point. So mid-80s we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I had only met him once in my life at that point. I was a college student. And I just called up like his office in California. And I said, I 
I see, I read in the paper, Leonard's coming to New York to do a movie. Can I have a job? That's all I did. I said it like that. And they were like, uh, hold on. And they talked to Leonard and like, yeah, show up uh, at, at, on this street at this time. And uh, he gave me a production assistant job, which is, you know, low on the totem pole. Uh, but it, it was a job and it was a great experience for a college kid, you know, who wanted to be an actor. Cool. And so I worked with him right, right then and there, the, pretty much the second time I met him, I worked with him. And, uh, and then he hired me as an actor after that, which was quite nice on a, a, a ride at Disneyland or Disney world, I'm sorry, in Florida called uh, body wars. Um, and, uh, which was sort of like a, a ride version of the movie Fantastic Voyage. And it was just, uh, wonderful. I got to be directed by Leonard, which was quite nice. And my first line was so complicated and full of technical jargon and I couldn't get through it. And I just said to him, I said, you couldn't give me an easier line. And he <laughs> said, what, what would you have liked to say? Hi, mommy. I mean, what? This is the line. This is the character. You're a, you're a technician. <laughs> so speak technical. So uh, so I did that, and then he hired me again as an actor on a movie called Funny About Love. And on that one, he and I really got to spend a lot of time with each other, just endless hours in his trailer and just talking and he telling me stories about his early life. And we just became really close on that one. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, to me, he was Cousin Leonard. Even though I knew he was famous, I knew he was quite famous, but until the day he died, I don't think it really sunk in how famous, because I got like a thousand emails that day from strangers, you know, sorry for your loss. I didn't even know them. (laughs) and They don't know me. They're fans of mine who were also touched by Leonard, you know, and and then the president of the United States released a statement about his death and... I was like, wow, the president's not going to talk about me when I die. I know that. So it just really hit home how many people we shared him with in the family, you know. Mm -hmm. It's quite nice, quite nice feeling to know he was so loved and will be so remembered forever. He's one of the most famous people on the planet of all time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I still watch his performances now. Um, I'm a big Star Trek fan um, from way back, too, so... um, and I also I also love Three Men and Three Men and a Baby. So, so yeah. one of my favorite movies from the eighties. <laughs> well, if you see at one point there's a cop there's a cop on a horse that is trying to stop I think Tom Selleck from something, and he gets off the horse and then the camera pans and I'm in, I'm standing across the street wearing these little shorts. We did it in the summer, and I'm holding a walkie-talkie. <laughs> and you can see me, and it made the final cut. And my car is in it as well. They needed an extra car to fill in the, the gaps in the street to make it look fuller. So I drove my car to the line. I parked it there, too. So uh, so I'm in that movie as well, <laughs> just for a touch. Yeah, you know, you know he, he was much loved actor by everyone. And, and even even the actors that he worked with on Star Trek have, have quite a few stories. And, like, one of, one of my favourites is... Uh, is is one that Walt, Walt Koenig tells about him refusing to take on on the role of Spock unless they, yeah. they, they unless they hired um, the the other actors. Right. Yeah. He did a little holdout, and it was quite quite nice. You know, Leonard didn't want to do it anyway. He didn't want to go return to the series, so it was sort of for him. It was everybody or nothing. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I've met Walter quite a few times, and I'm friends with his daughter. Uh, quite coincidentally, we were doing improv comedy together, and not yeah. You know, I did not know her through the Star Trek family. I knew her just through improv comedy, and then 
we bonded because we both had famous relatives on in the Star Trek franchise. Hers obviously a father, mine just a little second cousin, but uh, still we were both involved. And she's a very funny, very talented girl. I've hired her as well to do voiceover. Cool. Well, um, Jeff, it's been great speaking to you, and I've really enjoyed uh, learning about the work that you've done and everything. And uh, I could go on forever. You know, it's just really well. Thanks, Ian. Maybe when Famish is uh, coming out, I'll uh, come back and uh, say hello and give a plug for all your the European fans out there.